0: Good morning and welcome to the Destinado podcast. Today we'll be discussing the righteousness of the kingdom of God. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus describes the righteousness of the kingdom. And it's found in Matthew 5, for those of you following along. 520. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Grammatanon and Phariseeoi. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount outlines the conditions of entrance into the kingdom. It links together the past and the future, or rather the present and the future of the kingdom. The qualification for entrance into the future kingdom is a present righteousness, a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What kind of righteousness is this? The righteousness required for entrance is the one that results from God's reign in our life. The kingdom of God gives to us that which it demands, otherwise we could not attain it. The righteousness which God requires is the righteousness of God's kingdom, which God imparts as he comes to rule within our lives. It's God's standard of righteousness. In our text, the righteousness now demanded is set in contrast with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is significant because the scribes and Pharisees were profoundly interested in righteousness. You could describe it as their day job. The scribes were professional students of religion. They were the men who gave their full time, like professors in a theological seminary, the study of the scriptures, and whose main objective was the definition of righteousness. The Pharisees were those who accepted the teaching of the scribes, the disciples who put their teachings into practice, thereby aiming to achieve a life of righteousness. The scribes and their disciples were motivated by the sole concern of achieving righteousness. Yet our Lord says that his disciples must possess a righteousness which exceeds that. How can that be done? The scribes had developed an enormous body of law to define what was right and what was wrong. They devoted more attention and study to the definition of righteousness than any of us do. For example, the law says that men should not work on the Sabbath. If righteousness consists of obedience to the law, the law must be explicit. The question then is, what is work? If conformity to the will of God is defined in terms of law, then you must know precisely when you're obeying the law and when you're breaking it. The scribes and the Pharisee did not leave anything to private judgment or the leading of the Holy Spirit. They wanted a definition of what was right and what was wrong in every possible situation. Therefore, they had compiled a great mass of tradition, providing this necessary definition of righteousness, which became embodied in the Mishnah and then later in the Talmud. So I'll give an example about what, what is work. So let's say I come home from or you come home from worship on the Sabbath and you see a dead leaf on a rose bush beside the walk. And You stop and you pick the dead leaf. Have you worked? Probably not. Then you see a dead twig and you break off a twig. Have you engaged in work? Maybe. Then you see another branch which you can't break off, so you take your pocket knife and you cut it off. Have you broken the Sabbath? There's another branch as big as your thumb, too large for your knife, so you get your clippers and snip it off. Have you worked yet? The final step is to prune all your roses. Now, if you're living in terms of the law, you must have a dictum from God's law that you must know when you're within the will of God because your salvation depends on it. You must know what is work and what is not. And here's an actual example from Jewish rabbinic law. A man keeps chickens. On the Sabbath, one of his chickens lays an egg. Is it right to eat the egg or is it wrong? Is work involved or not? To the scribes, this was a serious problem and the rabbis debated this question and came to the following decision. If a man kept chickens for the purpose of producing eggs, and they laid eggs on the Sabbath, work was involved, and to eat the egg meant to break the Sabbath. But if you kept chickens for some other purpose, and they happened to lay eggs on the Sabbath, no work was involved, the eggs could be eaten without breaking the Sabbath. Now this may seem humorous to us, but from the viewpoint of Orthodox Jews, whose salvation depended on keeping the law, the terms of this salvation were no laughing matter. Now, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is the greater righteousness of the kingdom? The answer is found in specific illustrations of righteousness given by our Lord, which embody a number of principles or quote unquote laws. First, we have the law of anger. And it says this in Matthew 5, 21, the next verse. You have heard it was said to men of old, you shall not kill. And whoever kills shall be lie to judgment. Now, kill here in the Greek is actually better translated as murder. Um, Now, in Old Testament law and the rabbinic tradition, modern law recognizes different types of homicide, right? Deliberate murder is not the same as accidental homicide, and while both result in death of an innocent, there's a difference in motivation of action, and therefore a difference in degree of guilt, which the law takes into account. But Jesus went much, much further. He says... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment, crino, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, and that's an um, a Aramaic word, shall be in danger of the council, or ecclesiastica. Some translate this as church, it's really a, a council. And whoever shall say, You fool, you'll be in danger of, that, of um, fire. Now, the King James Version completely changed the meaning of this saying by translating whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, while others like the Revised Version say anger is sin, Um, the King James says that unjustified anger is sin. And the explanation of this is pretty simple when you look at the Greek. Um, If you look at the Greek Bible, you won't find the words without a cause. They're not in the text, but they were inserted by copyists because the language of the law just seemed too radical. Who can avoid becoming angry once in a while? Surely the Lord didn't mean all anger that condemns men to to uh, perdition. He must have had reference to unjustifiable anger, anger for there's no provocation. So they changed the old, they changed the meaning. And the apparently harsh saying of the oldest Greek text was softened by the addition of a single Greek word, eke, translated in the King James as "without a cause." But that's not what the Lord said. What he said is, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. And that's the reading of the oldest Greek Bible, which the translated, the authorized version, did not have access to. So whoever sells to his brother Raka should be in danger of the council. In other words, should be liable to trial and condemnation before a council of elders. And now Raka is an Aramaic word, which pretty much means just empty head. Um, A better Greek word would be Kophos. It means... There's nothing, nothing of interest or content within someone's mind. Um, but really, we don't know enough about Aramaic to be sure of its meaning. At least I don't. i not, Aramaic's not my best language. Um, but in any case, it's a word of strong emotion. It's an expression of anger. And that's all we need, we need to know here. So whoever shall say, you fool, will be in danger of, of the hellfire. Now, um, when I was a boy, I was raised not to... Um, condemn or curse anybody, because I had read been read this verse by my parents. I didn't even call someone a poor fool. And I was pretty certain if my tongue slipped and I called someone a, a name, then I'd get in trouble. But that's not quite the way now after I learned Greek that, and found the law that that's how it's meant to be taken. For we don't know really what the Arabic word means. But the real meaning isn't found in the precise significance of raka, a fool. The point is that both words and many un- others are evidence of anger and contempt towards another. And this is anger which the Lord is concerned, whatever form of expression that takes. So what did Jesus mean? Is anger as bad as murder? Is the hurling of um, a, a curse word at another person which wounds someone's spirit as serious uh, a fault or failure, an amatea, as the hurling of an axe and someone dies? That can't be the Lord's meaning, else we'd wreck the entire moral code. We all would, we'd all be found in judgment. Um, here's the root of the anger. And what Jesus meant is murderous, murderous fault or failure is amatea, but indeed also anger is amatea. And there's the root of the matter. Anger is amatea, amatea meaning uh, sin or fault or failure. If you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're really angry, and why you didn't murder anyone, if you've given vent to your feelings, you could have done so. It, look If looks could split a man's skull, someone's head would have been laid out from ear to ear. If you had a gun, you might've used him. And when there's such anger in your heart, and when there's an evil attitude towards another, there is Amateya. Murder is anger full-grown. And the scribal teaching laid the emphasis upon this outward act. A man might harbor hatred towards another, but not be guilty of serious sin if he restrained his anger. Jesus says this is not true righteousness. It's not the outward act, which is all important, but the attitude of your heart. If in your heart there's a smoldering hatred or bitter anger, which is expressed in nothing more deadly than words or even thoughts. In the sight of God, one is um, has amatea, and there is a consequence. You may have... Swung a club, never swung a club or thrown a stone or shot someone. But if heart harbors bitterness, hatred, anger, Jesus said that you are uh, judged before God as someone who has failed or faulted. The righteousness, therefore, which the kingdom of God demands is not concerned alone with outward acts of, of amatea. It goes behind the act, behind the deed, to the heart, to the kardias in Greek, and deals with what the man is himself before God. Kingdom righteousness is that what you are is more important than what you do. Except your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. So kingdom righteousness therefore demands that you have no um, evil in your heart towards fellow man. And it's obvious that such a heart righteousness can only itself be a gift of God. God must give what he demands. If we know the righteousness of the kingdom of God... The anger and animosity which frequently rises within us because we're fallen human beings can be transformed into an attitude of love and concern. The righteousness of the kingdom is a product of God's reign in the human heart. God must reign in our lives now if we are to enter the kingdom of God tomorrow. Next is the law of purity. So you've heard what is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. The word adultery here is porneia, which is where we get the word pornography. But porneia really means um, false idolatry. And it's um, putting another human being as an idol. But again here, the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God is a righteousness of the heart in contrast to mere righteous, rightness of conduct. The law forbade illicit sexual relationships. And if you abstain from such conduct, you are innocent. But Jesus says there's a higher standard which lays its demands upon men and women. It's the standard of the kingdom. It's a standard which cannot be formulated in terms of a legal code because it goes right to the intent. Before law, adultery is um, amatea. But Jesus says if in your heart there is lust, you stand before God as a guilty person in need of his forgiveness. Now, do we ever dare to be honest with God's word? There are probably fewer who hear these words who wouldn't be condemned as an adulterer or adulteress in the strictest sense of this word. Um, I know if you go on the internet, if you don't have an ad blocker on, um, which I recommend you do, and you go around the internet, images can be extremely triggering um, for both men and women. I know my own experience Seeing an image of a um, a naked or a vicious woman online is very triggering, and you have to be careful of what you see. And right there, there and then, um, you're guilty of of the law. It's a very difficult standard to be in, particularly in our day and age. If there's lust and you look upon a woman with a desire, you stand before God as amartea. This goes right to the, it doesn't stop with externals. It pierces to our thoughts and imaginations, the purpose of the mind and the heart. It goes to the very reservoirs of being. Um, righteousness, sexual purity begins in the heart. And how, how beautiful this verse is in our modern day and age. In a day-to-day where Amateya is glamorized, it's put on display when social habits thrust temptation on us, where we have to be players and we have to be loose with our morals, and that's seen as admirable, where it's a sign of manhood to be strong and to conquest women, when a woman's value and status is in how she looks and behaves towards others, which is in a sexy way, um, when a woman's value is only in how she um, is a sexual object, how modern this phrase is, it's beautiful. We need to come back to these standards of old-fashioned um, biblical righteousness and purity. It's beautiful. The imperative need, then, for a pure heart is emphasize the words that follow. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. It's very important to note that this verse and those which follow cannot be interpreted literally. You cannot satisfy the righteousness of the sun and the mountain alone, by fulfilling the external letter of his teachings. If you suppose your eye is constantly leading you to amatea, and you read this verse and say, I'm determined to solve this problem. The Bible says, if my eye caused me to stumble, I should pluck it out. And then you jab a stick into your eye and burst it out. Your problem is not solved. You're not free from the sin of lust. You're gonna experience great pain and suffering, but your real problem has not even been touched because amatea is a problem of the cardia, not the oro, um, the or um, which is the eye. And the same thing is true then of the next verse. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, it's better you lose one of your members than your whole body goes into Gehenna, goes to hell, or Edes. Um, and if you suppose you're constantly being led into sin from your hand, and you read this verse and say, okay, I'll cut off my hand. Again, it's not gonna solve your problem. The problem is in the heart and the mind, not in the actual um, hand. So what does this word mean? It means that if um, lust is your besetting amatea, you have to do whatever is necessary to find the solution to the problem, whatever the cost may be. If plucking your eye out would solve the problem, do it. If cutting your hand off would solve the problem, do it. Do whatever you must. Do not play with amatea and do not toy with temptation or it will destroy you. It will lead you down a, a dark path. Anyone who has played around before with pornography knows that it's a very, very slippery slope. It starts off innocent. It starts off with good-looking women. Soon before we know it, it's good-looking women in their underwear. Before we know it, they're naked. Before they know it, they're doing the sexual act. Before you know it, that's a very deep rabbit hole that leads to all sorts of depravity and images and things we see online. The correct thing to do that's going to save you all that grief is very simple. It's to not do it in the beginning. It's to cut off the source of why you're doing those things in your heart before you lead down that path. Now, it's obvious here that the standard of righteousness transcends the level of human attainment. No one's free from temper. No one's free from lust. Taken out of context, we're all doomed. Right? Because no one can meet that standard. No man can fulfill that. Yet it's the righteousness the kingdom demands. And the righteousness which God demands of us, he must give it to us or we are lost. The only life that can be made pure is the life which knows the power of God's kingdom and his rule. Furthermore, only those in whom God now exercises rule will enter into his future kingdom. This saying, apart from the grace of God, is not salvation, but condemnation. Now, look at verses 31 32. It's also said, Whoever divorced his wife, let him give her the certificate of divorce. And this goes back to Exodus and um, numbers, the old laws. But I say to you that everyone who marries, uh, sorry, who divorces his wife except on grounds of unchastity, makes her an adulteress, and marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Now here's a teaching that's again, flies uh, really far in the face of of the modern way. Um, Divorce and remarriage are just so casual now. You can get a quickie divorce in 30 minutes online, which is absurd, and divorce your wife um, in minutes, or divorce your husband in minutes and remarry in seconds. You can um, kick your spouse out of the home, you can get a prenuptial agreement, you can cut them off from any sort of, of income, Very quickly. Um, We take it so casually now. People get married and think, oh, it doesn't work out. I'll just get divorced. No, no, no. This isn't the standard here. The standards today of of marital morality are determined by convenience, not the word of God. This unbiblical standard pervades our entire culture. It's nasty. How often a man or woman puts away their partner because they've grown tired of them or they found a a new infatuation. And it's become a modern fashion. God's word said this is Amatea. Jesus said it's one grounds for divorce. And this is beautiful because it's a catch 22 situation. Um, when one party is unfaithful and breaks the marriage vow, in the sight of God, the marriage bond is broken. Right? When one party does it, the marriage is broken. The Old Testament con- condemned adultery with the death penalty in Leviticus. New Testament said that the adulterer is considered as dead and the innocent party is free from the marriage vow as though their mate had died. But divorce for the sake of marrying another is sin, for it's rooted in lust. Wow, beautiful. So if either one party commits the the um, amatea of, of human idolatry, of putting someone on, a, on the stand and worshiping them, of going to break their marriage vows, they are guilty. Um, Their marriage vows are now broken, the other person can marry, but they themselves are dead to the Lord. They've committed a grave sin, a grave problem. Um, Our generation, I think, needs to return to this biblical standard of purity in relationship between the sexes for the foundation of a stable family life. That's the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And how beautiful the marriage vows would be when it's seen as unbreakable, when it's only done before two people and God and it's a permanent bond, and the penalty of breaking that bond is you are removed from a fulfilling spiritual life. Next, we meet the law of honesty. Again, you have heard what it was said to men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, that what you say be simply yes or no, or nay and ook in Greek, and anything more than this comes from, from evil, or ponero, repression by toil. Now it's possible to take, and now it could be is it kakus as well. Kakus can mean unbeneficial. Good and evil in the Bible, this is interesting. Either mean beneficial or not beneficial. They don't necessarily mean good or evil. It's what's good for you and what's not good for you. So now it's possible again to take these verses superficially in literal interpolation of the law and miss the meaning altogether. After all, this is what the Pharisees and the lawmakers and the scholars did. They took everything super literally. Now, um, Some people feel they satisfy the teaching of this when they never let themselves be put under oath in a court of law. However, a formal oath in a modern legal procedure is not the context of this teaching. The setting of our Lord's word is something quite different. The Jew of antiquity was quite ready to put themselves under oath as a show of alleged goodwill and fidelity. To the Jewish mind, various objects possessed different degrees of holiness, and an oath was only binding to the degree that the object using the oath was thought to be holy. So according to scribal tradition, a man might bind himself by a succession of oaths and yet never violate his word without guilt. And that reached its climax in a scribal discussion of the validity of oaths, which really makes a mockery of our basic ethic of honesty. In other words, if you went to court and you did an oath on a, um, a novel, as an example, and said, I make all these oaths on this novel and then you break those oaths, you haven't actually broken an oath because that novel is not holy. But then if you were to make the oath in the Bible, you could not break that oath because the Bible is considered holy. That's just a mockery of honesty. That's not correct. So, um, and that's the historical situation, which is in the background of the Lord's teachings. Jesus said, do not swear by heaven nor by earth nor by Jerusalem nor by your head. And these and many other objects were used in the taking of oaths. What our Lord means is this, if you must take an oath before your word can be trusted, that very fact convicts you of being in amartia. The man who knows the righteousness of the kingdom of God does not need an oath at all. His word is valid. His word is like the word of God, which is truthful and always accurate and only stated when it needs to be stated. And again, how modern and beautiful this teaching is. My goodness, beautiful. It's not found in the formal oaths and the legal process. It's found about people who are sincere about keeping the letter of their agreements, but if they, um, and not if they can't find a way around the letter and take advantage of the competitor. This is what we do today. We make a legal contract and then we find ways to get out that legal contract and do whatever we want. That's not the letter of the law. Um, And the righteousness of the kingdom of God cuts squarely across this hypocrisy. it's let your word be your oath. What you say, When you say you're going to do something, let your neighbor be able to trust your word, both in spirit and the letter of your promise, and that's the law of honesty. And my goodness, how the righteousness of the kingdom, the law of honesty, tests business ethics. If you are in business and also a believer, this is the standard, and it's a beautiful standard. We would have great business without this. In our competitive society, Christians often employ the world standard in the conduct of their business rather than the standards of God's kingdom. You'd never know from the way some Christians conduct themselves in business relationships that they knew anything about the righteousness of God. God wants us to bear our testimony with our lips, but even more important is what we are and how we live. And unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scholars, we can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And let's just consider one more illustration for kingdom righteousness, the law of love. So the law of love, here it is, um, verses 38 to 43. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. So if any one of you hits the right cheek, turn the, the other one to him too. If anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well anyone forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you, and do not refuse him who borrow from you. I'm not using the, um, the Destin Outer Translation here. I'm just using another for convenience. And this teaching has been a stumbling block to many. How can we possibly apply the Sermon on the Mount in this world and live by its standards? My goodness. If anyone interprets these words literally, you certainly cannot conduct a business venture or protect your interests. You just can't. Um, if we obey this with wooden literalness, um, the inevitable result is that we'd we'd go bankrupt, or we'd be lending to everyone and we'd have no return. But if the Western nations literally practiced non-resistance and we liquidated all our military, some other um, tyranny, like the tyranny of communism, would, would invade. However, we've discovered that the Lord sometimes uses these radical metaphors, which are not meant to be taken with literalness. He's concerned with the condition of the heart and the innate attitude of the mind. Along with what's said in this passage are some other principles which have never really been abrogated. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans, that judicial procedures are of a divine origin, and um, that the Lord didn't fulfill the letter of the law with literalness. Um, John, also the high priest, asking about the teaching. And Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said secretly, Why do you ask me? And um, Jesus says, If I've spoken wrongly, bear witness to wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? And that's right before he's about to be killed. So we have to look beneath the letter of the teaching to discover its meaning. And reflection shows that it's it's possible to fulfill the letter of this teaching, and it completely missed the true meaning. Um, you've probably heard about a pacifist who believes in physical non-resistance. Um, this famous story, he and a friend were walking down the street one day when the pacifist found a discussion with the third man led to a quarrel. His opponent hit him in the face, and the pacifist literally turned the other cheek and was struck again. Thereupon, he turned and he walked away. And... The friend said to him, I don't see how you could exercise such self control and let yourself be struck twice. How do you do it? The pacifist said, I turned the other cheek, but you did not see how it was boiling inside. What he really wants to do was to return blow for blow. He didn't know about the righteousness he professed. Now, let's not misunderstand. There are situations where one will need to fulfill the very letter of his teachings. It's possible that the context of this passage is to be found. In the earlier saying the Lord, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There are times when men will persecute you because you were a follower of the Lord Jesus and because you do good, because you do right. And the emphasis persisted upon persecution by word of mouth, not on physical violence. You will meet opposition and sometimes bodily harm will befall you because you do what is good. This doesn't often happen in Christian countries, but in other lands, Christians do suffer from physical persecution. And when a follower of Jesus meets persecution, because they're a learner and disciple, they don't fight back. A missionary friend um, I read online recently, I heard, had some dental bridge work done. And then once when they were distributing Christian literature, they found themselves in an angry crowd and thought, oh, i better protect my new bridge work, my new dentistry. He wasn't concerned about fighting back but his financial investment. But then he said, no, I'll leave it with the Lord. And he elected the course of non-resistance and didn't lose um, his teeth in in that conflict. And there's going to be times like this when you fulfill the letter of the law of love. But that's not the only element or even the most important element in this passage. The righteousness about which the Lord was speaking is righteousness of the heart. The righteousness of the kingdom of God demands an ash of the heart which is not motivated by selfish concerns, which does not demand even one's legitimate rights. Our Lord looks for complete freedom from any spirit of personal revenge. When someone does you wrong, when someone speaks ill of you, when someone's offended you, what is your reaction? The reaction of the natural man, the reaction of the moral man, or the religious man is to get even and square the account. But that's not the righteousness of the kingdom. God's righteousness manifests itself in heart attitude, motivated by love for him who has done the wrong and which is free from the motivation of personal vindication. And um, the illustrations our Lord gives are really radical expressions of this love. Love extends even to our enemies. Um, It says here in 43, 44, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Yes, love your enemies, not merely your friends or your kind neighbors or even those who are neutral to you, but love those who have done you wrong. Love those who deliberately harm you. That is a supreme test of Christian character. I've seen situations many times where people and crew of Christians don't put this principle into practice among themselves. I've witnessed Christians often being the worst at uh, displaying bitterness and rancor and animosity and hostility and enmity. Um, that's denial of character. Jesus said your attitude, your actions must always be motivated by love. Complete freedom from the spirit of revenge and self-indication, returning love for hatred, repaying kindness for evil, that is the righteousness of God's kingdom. This love is not primarily a feeling or an emotion. Um, it's a concern in action. Love seeks the best welfare of the objects of its concern. And then Paul says that the classic uh, wedding verse, love is patient, love is kind. Love is concern and expression. We know from teachings of God's word that love may sometimes chastise and discipline. It says that in Hebrews. But love doesn't mean the abandonment of just some right. Nor is it sentimental benevolence, which doesn't have the capacity to tell someone they're wrong. Our human problem rests in the difficulty, the impossibility almost, of extracting elements of our selfish vindication from that. Our Lord's teaching has to do with personal reaction and character. Love seeks the best welfare even of its enemies. It can return a curse with a blessing. It repays violence with gentleness. It rewards wrong with kindness. The axis wake is not motivated by a spiritual vengefulness, but concern for the man. That's the um, righteousness of the kingdom. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He says, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Um, you can only really forgive a man when you act in love. If you don't look upon them with love, you don't really forgive. Even if you profess that you do. You, you do. And it's non-transactional, this phrase, by the way. It's not, we ask God to forgive us in the measure and degree which we've forgiven others. Um, so if the righteousness of the kingdom of God is a righteousness of human works, we have to admit that the prayer has no application to anyone. Human nature does not forgive like that. It does not matter what dispensation you look, you cannot regenerate human nature, which will produce conflict, conduct like that demanded in the Sermon of the Mount. If this verse is based on legalistic ground, Then anyone who attempts to live it is condemned. We need God's perfect forgiveness, and it's not human nature to forgive like that. It's difficult. And the Word of God here has a way of explaining ourselves. And later on in Matthew, the Lord explains what this forgiveness means. If you remember, Peter was troubled by Jesus' teaching about forgiveness. How could anyone forgive so completely? So finally, he came to the Lord and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, seven is not a very big number, but let's consider the situation. If someone offends us in the same way, seven times succession, can we honestly forgive him the same insult seven times? You're going to think, this guy hasn't learned. I'm not going to forgive them anymore. But listen to what Jesus said. He says, I do not tell you seven, but 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Now, suppose someone insulted you severely 490 times in succession someone rang you up every morning at 9 a.m. and they cursed you out 400, every day for 490 days in a row. That's almost two years in a row. Could you forgive him? You wouldn't want to. Only a heart filled with the grace of God forgive like that. And um, he, Jesus illustrates this level of forgiveness through that parable about the man of the talents, if you remember that um, sermon well that the man who has 10,000 talents, which is $10 million, he's forgiven his debt, but then someone else owes him 20 bucks and he puts him in jail. And then um, can you imagine forgiving for $10 million? What forgiveness and grace is that? And then the man says he doesn't repay that and he throws the other man in jail for 20 bucks. Um, So when we pray, forgive us our our debts as we forgive those who um, have amartea against us. Notice one thing. God's forgiveness precedes and conditions my forgiveness over someone else. The point of the parable is in this fact. Human forgiveness is grounded upon and motivated by divine forgiveness. My willingness to forgive is the measure of the reality of my profession that I have been forgiven. If I said the Lord has forgiven me the $20 million debt of my amartea, and yet I can't forgive someone, some brother, $20 of a trivial offense against myself, I make a mockery of my profession of faith. There's no reality in such self-contradictory religion. We must pray and we forgive as we forgive. That's the law of love and that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the evangelion. The righteousness of the kingdom is a righteousness which only God himself can give. Perfect purity, perfect honesty, perfect love, perfect forgiveness. There's no man anywhere who has a dispensation to live such a life. If that is the standard from which you must attain your ability, everyone is condemned of the kingdom of God. No one by human merit can attain the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. But that is what the kingdom of God demands. God's kingdom must give. It must be your grace or you are lost. Uh, Jesus' own illustration of forgiveness shows that this is the divine order. You can only really forgive as you know God's forgiveness. You can manifest the life of the kingdom only as you've experienced it. But as we've discovered earlier in this series, God's kingdom has entered in the present evil age, and we may experience its life, its righteousness. So the righteousness of the Sermon of the Mount is the righteousness of the man who has experienced the reign of God in his life. That's the standard by which the disciple of the Lord Jesus is to live. He will attain it in us so much as he experienced the sovereign reign of God in his life. We love as we ourselves have been loved, as the Apostle Paul says. He is to seek an experience which is completely under divine direction. And that experience is found in the new birth. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, until you're born anew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. When you submit yourself to the reign of God, the miracle of the new birth takes place within your heart. The Holy Spirit creates new life. As a new new creation, a new creature, the servant of God's rule will experience a real and evident measure of the righteousness of God's kingdom in this age. That's stated in the Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness of the kingdom is a manifestation of the life of the kingdom. Just the fullness of life which belongs to each to come has become a present blessing. So the righteousness of the kingdom belongs to each to come, but has been parted as the sons of the kingdom through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this short recollection on the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Um, may God bless you, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.